0: In today's episode, we will be picking up our discussion of 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7, and we're jumping into verse 6 here, probably get through verses 6 and 7 today. This is talking about gospel-driven prayer, or we could look at this being the gospel-saturated life as seen through prayer. In first, uh, the first verse and the first part of verse 2, we saw the command to pray, verse to be through verse three, the work of prayer, what it actually can accomplish when we pray, peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified life, and bringing pleasure to God, very important in verse three. Now in verses four to six, we're looking at the theology of prayer. So we're going to finish this out and probably look at the last point. And this theology of prayer addresses the idea of why do we pray? Not what does it accomplish, but theologically, uh, why, why are we doing this? And we saw, first of all, that we do this because God desires salvation for those in authority. That's verse four. Uh, but then secondly, we also saw that God who offers salvation is overall. So the one who wants us to pray for those in authority, uh, and he wants us to pray for them for their salvation, the one who offers salvation is overall. And uh, so we saw that in verse five, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So we dug into that. Now in verse six, as we continue the theology of prayer, really, uh, and that's what we're looking here, the, the theology of prayer, we see in verse six that the work of salvation is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. When it comes to salvation, this is, right, he desires salvation for those in authority, The one who offers salvation is over all, but the work of salvation now in verse 6 is bound up in the person of Christ Jesus. So remember, he said, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And now we get a description, verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So as we begin to look into verse six now, the work of salvation being bound up in the person of Christ Jesus, we could ask the question, how did Jesus Christ become the mediator between God and men? The answer lies first of all in this idea that he gave himself up. And what we need to recognize from this is that it was in his power not to, but he made a choice. Remember that he said No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I will raise it back up again. So when he says that, and we we reflect on that often, actually every month at our church when we have the Lord's Supper, we reflect on that. But we have to recognize that it is present here in this verse as well, because this verb who gave himself. We notice it somewhat, and it becomes even more explicit when you look at it in the original language, but even in the English, which this is a good translation of this, is trying to convey something that is past action. And we can often do that in what is called here in the Greek, the aorist tense. We have present tense and we have aorist uh, we have others as well, but in this aorist sense, it's not always past. But what aorist usually conveys is a completed action, and when we think of completed action, we often often think of that as being in the past. And often cases it is, but we can't be always led to think about it that way because there are sometimes when we find somebody speaking about the future using an aorist. And they mean that the action will be completed or something to that nature. Uh, But here it means a completed action. And it is very, very clear here the way Greek works is it's tied uh, to its antecedent. Uh, It is an aorist active participle, one who was doing an action but he wasn't doing you know, an ongoing action. He completed an action, one who did this action. We also note that this participle is masculine and singular. Well, who could that mean? Well, obviously, he's talking about the man, Christ Jesus, who is also masculine and singular. That's the nearest direct object or nominative to that, so that links it there. So he's the one, Jesus Christ, who did this. Now... It says that he gave himself. What's interesting is in the original language, we don't have this preposition. We don't have he gave himself up. We understand that as an implied thing, but the text literally reads who gave himself a ransom on behalf of all. So this is interesting. The action to give, didomi, is a common Greek verb that people will learn probably in their first year of being a a Greek student. That's the word that's being used here. The one who's giving is Jesus. Okay. The action belonged to him. He gave. Now, he gave himself. That is there as well. He who gave himself. The thing that he gave was himself. And we say we gave himself up, and we understand well how did he give himself? He gave himself up to death, if you will. Okay. So that is understood as well. But the action belonged to him. In other words, no one imposed this on him, no one forced it, uh, no one did this to him, and he just had to willingly take it. The fact of the matter is, is he is the one who did it. He gave himself. So that's also interesting because he is the direct object of the gift he gave himself and we understand you know John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son the direct object of that gift is his son and that's incredible too because Jesus is confirming that in this verse if if you understand that so he gave himself And we understand to give himself, how do you give him yourself? Well, understanding the whole kenosis, the humbling, you know, we read about that in Philippians chapter 2 of Jesus who left his eternal throne in heaven and took on human flesh and came here to die that's why he came. So the giving of himself wasn't just the incarnation, it was actually that he gave himself up as a sacrifice that would be acceptable in the sight of God. And not just a sacrifice, we recognize, and we've said this before, the letter to the Hebrews uh, points out that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And it is that remission of sins that we are looking at. His giving himself necessitates that we understand this to be his death and his death was accomplished through the shedding of blood on the cross. And what did that do? So he, he was in control of that. We'll get to the, the, what did that do question in just a second, but he's the one who gave himself or gave himself up. He gave the gift of himself. He literally gave himself as a ransom on behalf of all. The nature of his death now that we understand that that was his gift to us was his death. Uh, Lots of people die. We don't typically think of that as a gift, right? Uh, That is something else that we should pause and ponder for just a little bit, is that when people around us die, we usually mourn and with right cause and things like that because there's separation and the reason that people die is because of sin. Well, Jesus died because of sin if we qualify that, not because he was a sinner, but he died because we are sinners and he paid the penalty for sin. He's the only one who didn't deserve death and he died. We mourn people's death because it means separation. Jesus died so that we might have life. And for those who die in Christ ahead of us, we know that we will have a reunion with them someday. So that's that's incredible. So he gave himself he gave himself in death. And what did his death accomplish? Well, he gave himself here, it says, as a ransom. Interestingly, the word that's used for ransom here has as its root another word, which is found in the New Testament only two other times. This particular word, though in its complete form, is only used here uh, in 1 Timothy 2.6, and it just means ransom. It's it's a it's a form of a hapax legomena, but really it's it's used three times: Matthew ten twenty eight and Mark ten forty five, which are parallel texts in those two synoptic gospels where we referenced that earlier. But uh, Mark ten forty five, actually this is Matthew twenty verse twenty eight. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. We're going to come back to that in just a moment here. But what we're talking about is ransom, a price that is exacted, or we could say the price that is demanded or required. In other words, there is a ransom price on our soul because we have an infinite price on our soul because of sin then it's going to take an infinite payment. We can't make that payment because we are by definition mortal and we're not eternal, but sin by its nature, because it is against an eternal God, the eternal God is eternal in nature. That's why we can never do anything to atone for our own sin. And so the price that is on our head because of our sin is, really a ransom price. If if we're going to have that paid for, and since we can't pay for it ourselves, if somebody else is going to come along and do that, well, that's what he did. In other words, and even in saying that it is a ransom means that this isn't something that he had to do. It's something that he chose to do on our behalf. Very incredible, right, when we think about that. So this Jesus, who is the mediator between God and men, He is a man, we talked about that hypostatic union before, and what he did is to give himself, he gave the gift of himself, and when he did that, his death worked as a ransom to pay a price. Incredible. Now, that also leads us to a discussion about the extent of his work. This gets deep into the weeds, and I'm going to leave it at this uh, only from the standpoint that it it gets uh, addressed in other areas of Scripture in a much deeper fashion. Uh, so when we think about all, we already touched on the fact that all doesn't always mean everybody without distinction, okay? The context of this passage is for kings and all who are in high positions, but what it has to mean at its bare minimum is that what Christ accomplished on the cross was at the very least sufficient to cover everybody's sin. And by everybody there, we mean everybody without distinction when we talk about the sufficiency. The efficacy of it, uh, does it actually cover everyone's sin? That is the big debate. But when it comes to kings and people who are in high places, what Christ accomplished on the cross covers and reaches even to them. J. N. D. Kelly pointed out in his uh, commentary on the pastoral epistles. He says this is a free version of Christ's own statement, and he references here Mark ten forty-five, which we just talked about: the Son of Man who came not to serve, but to uh, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Both Matthew's version in Matthew ten twenty-eight and Mark's version have it the same exact way that he gave himself as a ransom for many. And there the the term is distinctly different. Here it is all, there it is palouse, which is many, uh, and, and it is a different word. So it's an adaptation, or as J.N.D. Kelly says, a free version of that. And, and he goes on to say, since Paul is not setting out a theory of the atonement of his own, but citing what has become a theological cliché, He says it is fruitless to speculate about the complex of ideas lying behind it. The important words for him were for all. It is the fact that Christ died for all men without any kind of favoritism, that's what he's aiming at here, that makes it obligatory for Christians to uh, pray for them all without distinction. So here we're not talking about the extent of the atonement, but salvation is in fact offered to everybody. It's not just offered to lower classes. It's available to kings. It's available to queens. It's available to presidents, to prime ministers, to governors, to mayors, to everybody that we've talked about in previous episodes when it comes to praying for people in high positions and in positions of authority. And that's very, very important for us to understand, okay? Because he did this and because salvation is possible for them, that is why we pray for them. In other words, there was no group of person that was excluded when Christ accomplished what he did at the cross in making salvation uh, available to all, even though we know not everybody's going to believe. But we have been tasked, right? Mark's version of the Great Commission is what, in Mark 16, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Preach the gospel. What's the gospel? You need to be saved. You need to believe in Jesus Christ, right? We go, and it doesn't mean every creature as in like dogs and cats and cows and wolves and bald eagles and all those things and the ants on the ground. No, uh, what he's talking about is taking the gospel to those who are image bearers and who need to be redeemed. And so we go and we preach the gospel to every person. Well, that means that if we preach the gospel to every person, we don't have the power to know who's going to believe, and we also know from Scripture that that decision was made in eternity past. But at the same point, because we don't know those things, we have a duty to go out and proclaim the gospel, and we believe that in doing so, we scatter the seed, which is the word of God, far and wide, and if it happens to land before kings and people in high places— they have an opportunity to believe. (laughs) And that's incredible. Okay. So that's what we're talking about here. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. And then he goes on and finishes and says, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, this is interesting. I think we have to understand this in context. The testimony given at a proper time means that when we have the opportunity to declare the gospel, not just pray for these people for their salvation, but we may have the opportunity to present the gospel to people who are in high places of authority. We pray for kings, we pray for presidents, we pray for people in high positions. Sometimes we are given an audience with them, and that is the testimony. When we have that opportunity and that audience, we can boldly say, not only have we been praying, but that you should believe. Think about this. Acts uh, 24, starting in verse 10 and then moving forward, we see an example of this where Paul has the opportunity to stand before Felix and give testimony. Or, again, two chapters later, Paul, again, has a testimony given at the proper time, starting in Acts 26, verse 1, and the verses that follow. He stands before King Agrippa and is told, you have permission to speak for yourself, and he gives testimony and Paul is just urgent with him to believe the gospel remember uh, you know there he says almost you've persuaded me to become a christian you know w- you know would you have me be saved and, and Paul says i would have you be as i am except without these chains and it's incredible he has the opportunity to stand before somebody in a very high position listen if they die apart from christ then the best thing they will have ever experienced for all eternity will be that one temporary moment on earth, which is, we know the entire life that we live on this earth is just a mist that's here for a little while and vanishes away. That's all they're going to get. That's the only good. And so we might look at people who live the high life and have all the nice things that money can afford and power and authority can afford. If they die apart from Christ, they die with nothing, If we have nothing in this world, but we have Christ, then we have everything. And so that's why we pray for people. Uh, And that's really incredible. So the work of salvation is bound up in the person of Christ, uh, Jesus. He's the only one who did this. He gave himself as a ransom, a payment for the souls of men. And that's the testimony that we have the opportunity to give. And by the way, we don't just wait for that opportunity before princes and kings and people who are in high positions. We want that opportunity all the time. People coming into your home, uh, people that you meet at the grocery store, people that you meet in the doctor's office, at the park, uh, wherever it is, uh, we, look for, we look for those opportunities in the natural rhythms of life. Well, let's move on then to the fourth aspect, right? We've looked at the command to pray, verse 1, and the first part of 2. Then we looked at the work of prayer, last part of verse 2, verse 3. Then we looked at the theology of prayer. That's what we've been looking at in verses 4 to 6. And now we want to consider, lastly, here in these last uh, couple of minutes of this episode, the apostle of prayer. We already mentioned that Paul is saying this, and he's already had opportunities probably as he's writing to Timothy to do a couple of the things that are recorded for us in the book of Acts, which is why he makes this statement. But who is this apostle of prayer? He says this, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The apostle of prayer for this. What's this? Well, it's the ministry of prayer that he's just articulated, that he is commended to Timothy and, in fact, to all the church. Uh, he is not commanding others to do that which he doesn't do, but he does this. He's been appointed this, right, uh, to this end for this ministry of prayer. Secondly, I was appointed. Paul received his commission directly from God, but as a pattern to the church, okay? So, Paul's education, his appointment to that office of apostle was very different uh, than the rest, and it happened as one out of out of time that he talks about, uh, but it, it happened nonetheless. He was appointed directly commissioned by Jesus Christ, and he says this, I was appointed a preacher. Interesting title here, k Rux, say, or K-Rooks, uh, to use it in its nominative form. It is one of the more prominent words when we talk about the the articulation of the gospel, and especially those who hold the office of pastor. Now, this isn't pastor as in shepherd here, but it is one who proclaims the word of God and proclaims the gospel to declare it boldly. That's what he's talking about, being a preacher. Interestingly, Paul is not the only one who does that. Obviously, pastors who have a duty to not only shepherd or be a, in function as an under shepherd to a local congregation, they have a duty to be apt to teach, as we'll get into uh, in the next chapter. That's the thing that sets them aside or apart from, not aside, but apart from the, the deacons with regard to qualification. So they're supposed to be ones who are able to teach and to boldly proclaim. That's one of the things that they do. They proclaim the word of God uh, boldly, and authoritatively. And that's what Paul is doing here as a preacher. Not only is he a, a preacher, but an apostle and a sent one. And we've had this discussion before, so we won't go deep into this, but we're not talking about, in the general sense, apostolos in which we are all sent ones, little a apostles. But he's actually talking about the office there. So he identifies himself as a preacher, an apostle, apostle, And he affirms that, uh, but there's one other thing. We'll come back to that parenthetical statement. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. Uh, That statement there. But there's a third aspect. He is appointed as a preacher to boldly proclaim an apostle directly sent, commissioned by God, and a teacher. A teacher. A teacher of who? Well, Gentiles in the faith uh, and in truth. So, primarily he is an apostle to the gentiles now he takes the gospel when he goes in missionary journeys to the synagogue first to the Jews first and also to the greek which is what he says to the uh, to the church at rome right romans 116 but he is the apostle to the gentiles in other words what he's showing is that the gospel is for everybody it's a fitting touch here at the end of all of this, that he would say we should pray for all people. Well, most people are going to fall outside of the pericope of the the nation of Israel. But he does take it to the house of Israel first, but then he takes it elsewhere. And he has opportunities, as we've already noted, to stand before kings and people in high positions. And so when he says here that he was appointed as a teacher of the Gentiles, he goes to the Gentiles and he proclaims to them the word of God. He proclaims to them the gospel. And all of this, uh, and teacher of the Gentiles in faith, in truth, uh, he is uh, appointed and he teaches and he preaches in faith and by faith and in truth. It keeps with the word of God. He doesn't twist it to his own uh, passions or desires or anything like that. But he says, I am telling the truth, I am not lying. He has to make that affirmation. In other words, he didn't make this up. A lot of people uh, today, and we don't have time to get into that in depth, but a lot of people just take their own commission, calling, office, anything, title that they want upon themselves. And that's not what Paul is doing. He's not doing this for fame. and And we also have to recognize, too, that if we put ourselves historically back when this was written this came at great cost. Uh, this was not a glamorous thing. He often did not know where you know, his next meal may have come from. In fact, he actually says, I believe it's to the letter uh, to the Philippians, that he knows how to be abased and how to abound. In other words, he's had very little in his life and sometimes he's had plenty, uh, but he knows that God will provide for him. It's not a glamorous thing. And uh, the later he goes in life, uh, the more risky it becomes, and he's, he's going to end up dying a martyr's death for his faith. So to, to say that he is all these things, maybe in Western civilization right now with freedom of religion, people think it's a cool thing to have these types of titles and to be a religious teacher or something like that, but there may come a day, especially when you're doing it in the name of Christ, which, by the way, is different than all the rest. Now you can be a religious figure in a satanic religion, which is all the other religions of the world, and you're not going to receive that blowback and kickback from the world because this is exactly what Satan wants. But when you try and do this in the name of Christ uh, and you're fabricating that, that's you know you'd have no reason, and Paul would have no reason to say this. I mean, So it's interesting that when he talks about this, he's not trying to build up some resume here, but he needs to make sure that people understand he was appointed by Jesus, and he'll go into that in other letters. And in a pre, uh, you know, he was appointed how? As a preacher, one to declare as an apostle sent directly from Jesus and as a teacher to this specific audience. Well, that's all we have time for today. We're going to wrap up our discussion Uh, of this section now, finally, 1 Timothy 2, 1-7, and we'll pick up the text in verse 8 in our next episode. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.